So it is not possible to have a healthy economy, as we've seen, if we don't have healthy people and a healthy planet. So people, property and planet all have to go together. One shouldn't come at the expense of the other. And we don't need to exploit the environment or people to make money. The global food system is facing unparalleled challenges and changes. So how can we reset for a better, more sustainable future? Introducing Control-Alt-Meat, the weekly podcast that explores the issues transforming the global food business. I'm your host, Katie Briefel. Come join me as I speak to the innovators and investors, policymakers and product developers, the scientists and the chefs, who are all on the front line reshaping the future of our food. This week's episode is with Maria Latini and Fiona Reynolds. Fiona Reynolds is the CEO of the Principles for Responsible Investment, or PRI. The PRI is a UN-supported organization with more than 4,000 signatories who collectively represent over 100 trillion US dollars. She is responsible for the PRI's global operations. Appointed in 2013, Fiona has 25 years of experience in the financial services and pension sector. She was also named one of the 20 most influential people in sustainability globally by Barron's Magazine and has twice been named one of Australia's 100 Women of Influence by the Australian Financial Review. And Maria Latini is the Executive Director of the FAIR Initiative, the world's fastest growing network focusing on ESG risks in the global food sector. Prior to this, Maria had worked for the UN-supported Principles for Responsible Investment, where she managed the PRI's signatory relations and outreach strategy, while raising awareness of material ESG issues amongst the institutional investor community. Maria has over 20 years of experience in global investment banking, business and finance, and has worked at both JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank. Currently, she serves on the Sustainability Accounting Standard Board and the Standards Advisory Group. In this episode, we discuss their amazing work at PRI and the FAIR Initiative and how things have changed in the ESG space in the last 10 years. We also get their thoughts on what we can expect from COP26 this year, how we can better galvanise countries to take greater action to tackle the climate crisis, and how COVID-19 has increased attention on the problems in our current food system. Fiona and Maria also offer practical advice for furthering individual investors and pension holders' knowledge. And it's ultimately an empowering conversation where both of them offer helpful takeaways for listeners on how we can all make an impact. Fiona and Maria, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Really delighted to be here. Thank you, Katie. Yeah, delighted to be here and look forward to the discussion. Amazing. So as we dive in, I'd love to see for listeners who aren't familiar, I'd love to do a bit of an overview of ESG and then Fiona, if you could talk a little bit about PRI from a top level, that would be amazing. So, well, maybe I'll start talking about the PRI. So the PRI was formed in 2006 out of the UN system by really a small but committed group of 86 asset owners who were aiming really to bring sustainability issues to capital markets. And we've recently celebrated our 15th birthday. We now have more than 4,000 global signatories who collectively represent over 100 trillion US in assets under management. And today, the PRI is the largest responsible investment organisation in the world and one of the most influential investment organisations 
in the world. So ESG, maybe I sh should just talk about that. It's really uh, that, that the letters ESG stand for environmental, social and governance issues. And ESG is about how do you integrate environmental issues, social issues, governance issues into the investment process. That's really what, it, what it's all about. And you've been at um, PRI for a long time, around a decade. How have things changed in that time that you've been involved? Oh, there's been really huge change uh, in the time that I've been involved. When I first started at the PRI, now Maria was working at the PRI when I was already arrived. <laughs> and um, part of the work that we were really trying to do was to get investors just to understand that thinking about environmental, social and governance factors should be part of how you think about risk and how you manage risk. Many investors are long-term investors. They're managing your and my pension money. And, you know, if I start in a pension fund today at 25, I'm, not, I'm going to be invested in that pension fund until I'm, you know, 70, 80 years old, still taking money out of that retirement fund. So you have to think about things not just in the short term, but you've got to think about long term issues, issues like climate change. These things are going to impact the portfolio. But people really um, in the early days thought that this was all some sort of tree hugging, hippie agenda, and that they were all going to have to give up returns for the good of uh, climate and environmental and social social issues, that they weren't real investment issues. And a decade later, uh, we're now starting to see that ESG issues, sustainability issues have moved into mainstream finance. And now it is the fastest growing area of finance. And not only are people starting to think about what are the ESG risks on my portfolio, they're also starting to think about what are the real impacts on the real world of the way that I invest. So they're really becoming part of that mainstream conversation. So a hell of a lot has changed, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot more that needs to be to be done towards investors really incorporating in a in a deep and systematic way ESG factors. And in your opinion, what caused um, people to change their perception of ESG to make it a more mainstream priority? I think that there were two big drivers. So first of all, in 2015, there was the signing of the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement was really the first time when governments came together and made a commitment to act on climate in a significant way. And all governments then you, that investors could see were moving in one direction. In the same year, the, um, the Sustainable Development Goals were launched out of the UN. And it set out a framework for of 17 areas or, or 17 issues were really risks for the world and that we really needed to address. And it gave all governments in the world signed on to the sustainable development goals. And I think this just set a new pathway and um, direction, as well as there had, of course, been greater academic evidence done that showed that, you know, investing in a way that considered ESG factors was not about giving up returns. In actual fact, in some cases, you could make more money. So time, evidence and governments beginning to act uh, as well. And I think that there was also much more happening around the climate space and people could act, act, actually see for themselves that we were having greater 
fires around the world, greater floods, greater natural disasters, and that these all had uh, flow-on effects and that Mm. they were going to impact investors and the private sector as well. Yeah, some really interesting topics I'd love to dive into later in the episode. But before we do, uh, Maria, as the Executive Director at FAIR, I'd love for you to give a bit of an overview of the organisation and, and what you do there. Well, well, thanks, Katie. Um, so again, I'm, I'm the Executive Director of the FAIR Initiative, um, which is also part of the Jeremy Collar Foundation. Um, Jeremy launched FAIR in December of 2015, really to focus in on some of the material financial risks associated with the food system. And he'd been working quite a long time through giving grants at his foundation on some of these really key issues that we'll speak about today, like antimicrobial resistance, um, animal welfare, um, the need to shift um, protein supply chains. And so FAIR was launched now five years ago and really modeled after the PRI. I mean, as Jeremy Collar, an investor himself through his private equity firm, um, looked at the successes of, of the PRI and how they were engaging with investors I mean, investors, therefore, you know, engaging with their investee companies, he thought that the model was perfect, really, to raise the awareness of food system risks, which are expansive throughout the entire food supply chain, um, and and really bring together um, all of the key issues so that investors would understand the risks and opportunities in their portfolio. So five years on, again, somewhat modeled in the PRI, this idea of raising awareness and using uh, investors through their through being good stewards of capital to really engage with investee companies for you know to affect change. Wonderful, and I guess a question to both of you, but maybe we start with you, with you, Maria. I mean, so environmental campaigners and animal rights activists have been talking about these issues for years, and yet both of your organisations are really tackling this from an investment perspective. Could you talk a little bit about why that's important, both of you, really? Well, I mean, just in in terms of food system risks, I, I think. You know, unfortunately, if you, if you look at animals in the food system, all, you know, a lot, the engaging on animal welfare really initially wasn't very financially material, right? Because even if investors themselves cared how animals were, were treated in, in the food system, if, if there was ever, you know, a, a news story or, uh, you know, an undercover film or anything like that, you know, you never really saw long-term hits to profitability of these companies. The reputational risk just didn't affect these companies' bottom line for for long periods of time. And it didn't really um, help in instigating any change from within. So once investors started getting involved and almost the the arc that, um, that Fiona laid out, once there was more, Um, academic evidence that uh, really engaging on some of these environmental and social issues would affect the bottom line over the long term, investors started thinking about how they would begin to value those through the modeling of their investment portfolios. And then you had some really significant events that really sort of showcased the risk to the bottom line, whether it was Enron, obviously, you know, having significant effects on um, the, the values of pension portfolios or VW or BP, or even on the animal welfare side, um, you know, the film Blackfish. And I think then you really saw that the real tangible connection with some of the issues that we've been speaking about and what the, uh, in a very short period of time, how that could hit the bottom line. And I think um, that's helped everyone in the process from consumers um, to investors, to corporates and policymakers kind of coming together to sort of coalesce their thoughts about the need to really think about the financial system and how environmental and social risks are affecting them. So I think that the NGOs 
all, all of the NGO groups, et cetera, play a really, really important role in that. In actual fact, they're often onto issues way before governments and the finance sector. But as Maria was saying, we have to think about the issues from an investment lens and what it means from for investors. And both of our organisations try to do that in different ways. So is this an investment issue? How is it? How does it impact your investments? And as investors, what can we actually do about it? Can we do something about it? And in many cases, we can, because as investors, we're, we're large owners of capital. And um, as I said, pair I signatories represent over 100 trillion US in assets under management. So we can take steps to engage with companies to try to change practices that are good for the members of the pension fund and are also good for um, returns as well. So I always think that as a person who's in a pension fund, it's not enough for the pension fund just to think about my returns. That's their job. That's a given. But they also have to think about the world into which I'm going to retire. And if they destroy the world into which I'm going to retire with how they manage money, then what's the point of it all? We have to understand how these things are interconnected. And I think something like COVID-19 really does show the interconnectedness of issues. So it is not possible to have a healthy economy, as we've seen, if we don't have healthy people and a healthy planet. So people, profit and planet all have to go together. One shouldn't come at the expense of the other. And we don't need to exploit the environment or people to make money. And that's really about how, you know, how I think about the agenda of the PRI. What is the finance sector's role in um, the world? And we've seen a big shift in the way that the private sector, both corporations and investors, think about their responsibilities in the world. We kind of went from maybe 10 years ago about, you know, trying to convince investors that they had a role to play in doing no harm, right? That a lot of these environmental and social risks would have significant impact to the profitability of their portfolios. But now we're seeing tides turn in a way where, you know, investors actually see that, you know, they can capitalize on actually incorporating doing good um, and not just build back better, but looking forward to what, um, you know, what the world will look like in 10, 20 and 30 years and, in, and invest mindfully into making sure that they are playing a role in ensuring that we have the companies and the sectors and the system that is prepared to make sure that we live in a sustainable, equitable world, right? Mm. So, and again, you know, go back to the SDGs, like that was an important milestone, I think, because it's not just talking about the developed countries, but how can we work together to ensure that the developing countries are, are brought up and, you know, to um, sort of an equal level as we think about what sustainability looks like in the next, you know, coming decades. Yes, absolutely. And I, I Katie, just adding to that, I um, when COVID was first coming down, coming down the line at us, I, I sort of thought, well, how have we, as the investment investment community, you know, not not seen this? How how do we not not know that this was coming our way? And one of the first things I did was go and look at the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report, which I read every year. And I mean, when you go back and, and really look at all of this information that is out there that that talks to you about what are some of the risks that are coming that the world's facing, 
um, pandemics is there in black and white as a key risk, one of the top 10 risks. Now, it wasn't necessarily in the bucket of the most likely things to happen, mm. but it was there. And so why was it ignored, do you think? So I think that, you know, well, well, one of the problems is if you think about environmental, social and governance issues, that is a very long list of issues. In actual fact, one of the things that over my time in working in this space and Maria will have definitely seen is that the list just keeps getting longer. Right. Nothing ever comes off the list. There's no problem that I can say in the whole time that I've worked in the space, problem solved, done. You, the list just keeps getting, get it, getting longer. And so you're always trying to prioritise um, what are the most material risks? How, how, you know, what, what is the evidence that I can, that I can see? Um, what's the information that, that's out there? How can, I, how can I measure all of these things? And I think we're becoming more sophisticated in those issues, but um, you, you just never get it going to be able to see every risk in time, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And and we've talked a little bit about in the last sort of 10 years, the, the positive change in attitudes that you've seen and the, the increased focus on these issues. What would you say were the kind of biggest challenges that you'd faced in your tenure at the PRI? Well, um, first of all, as I was saying earlier, it was actually getting people, investors to understand that these were risks that they needed to deal with and that they would impact their returns if, if they if they had it. For example, say you're a big insurance company, a big global insurer, uh, an investment manager, and you insure issues. Look at look, just look at how many climate disasters we've had a, over the last decade, mm. and how much more that you're paying out in premiums, and how you have to think about those risks from an I- investor and how it's going to affect you. If you don't um, if you don't invest with a future lens, thinking about what are what are all of the impacts of things like climate change and how can I invest in solutions and possibly make money in the future? What are the investments of the future? And you just stayed the course of thinking, oh, I'll just stay invested for the rest of my life in the coal sector. Then I'm not sure that you're being a very prudent investor. So I just do think that we've seen that change in my mindset and understanding of risk, but not just risk, also about opportunities. It's not just all of the things that I'm going to to lose out on. It's also about all of the things, the green economy of the future and the investment world, the investment world of the future that's opening up to investors as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and also uh, 10 years ago, I think one of the challenges was speaking the language of investors, right? Right. Um, So it, it, you often had big asset owners who obviously are investing in perpetuity, very long periods of time that have been thinking um, as you know, much like invest, much like insurance companies. But when you think about you know certain types of investors, those who are investing across different asset classes, whether it's you know private equity or fixed income, it's not all about you know stocks. Some invest directly in um, assets. You know, there's there's many farmland um, investors out there, um, and so I think what happened in the industry is that you really had to communicate that it's about talking about what's material for a particular sector in a particular asset class and putting, quite frankly, onus of the responsibility also on those investors to be able to sift through what's important and what's not and help the entire industry sort of come up the learning curve, right? So I think that's really what's what's been happening and it's really been fast-tracked in the past couple of years where you're seeing, again, this sort of coming together of a community to really mm. help 
um, each other learn and grow um, and to address some of these really significant risks in the most you know, efficient and effective way. Yeah, and then you've seen organisations like the PRI, like FAIR, et cetera, who have developed guidance and, well, how do I do this? What do I do? What steps do I take? Well, I think I'll just add one more important step that I think that's happened. So if you're an investor, you have a fiduciary duty and that fiduciary duty, you know, is also about you know making money for your clients, for your beneficiaries. And investors used to think, if I, if I think about these issues, then I'm going to breach my fiduciary duty and I'm going to fall foul of the regulators. Now, you know, just in, we've just seen throughout the EU and in other countries, regulators make it clear that part of your fiduciary duty is to consider these risks. So there's been a lot of change um, from a regulatory point of view that has also given investors, well, far more comfort on some cases and in other cases telling them, well, you must do this and you actually must report to us about how you go about considering ESG factors. So it's a shift from from being reactive to actually proactive. Proactive, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so what would you, and question to both of you, maybe if we start with you, Fiona, what would you say the sort of like the top line highlights or the big wins that the PRI has had in recent years? What are you most sort of proud of that's affected real change? Yeah, well, I don't want to just harp on about the climate issues, but they, but they are sort of the most urgent issues. So I do think that that when I started at the PRI, at least, there weren't a lot of investors thinking about the issue of climate change. Not to say none weren't, there were some. So we launched many, many years ago what was called the Montreal Carbon Pledge, and we asked investors to start measuring their carbon footprint. Now, once you understood what your carbon footprint was, then it was pretty hard to ignore. So then investors had to start thinking about, well, what will we do? So an, ex- so an example of that is one of the very big Californian pension funds, CalPERS, one of the you know, biggest asset owners in the world, then realised that it was actually in all the stocks that they owned, which was you know, over 10,000, there was actually 100 stocks that were driving their carbon footprint. So then we all got together and talked about this issue as an outcome of doing the carbon footprinting. And we then created what's called Climate Action 100 Plus, So taking that idea of 100 largest organisations who are driving your carbon footprint, and that has now turned into the biggest ever investor to corporate engagement in the world. So 500 investors, 50 trillion US in assets under management, all moving in the same direction, targeting the 100 largest emitting companies in the world, saying, we want you to set an emissions reduction target. We want to know what it is. We want to understand how you're thinking about climate changes at your board level, and we want you to report against it. Mm. And with that, it's starting to see real change in corporate behaviour. So recently, we've seen at Exxon that investors have uh, voted were really frustrated about board action. That the board at Exxon was not taking enough action on these issues. That investors therefore risk losing money, and they've voted on their own directors. So directors off and new directors on. We right. saw at Chevron that the investors voted to see them take greater action about emissions reduction. We've seen in Europe, in the Netherlands, that a, that, um, a group of, not, not our signatories, but a, a group has taken shell to court. And the court has said, 
you must act. So we're just seeing really much greater use of leverage that investors had. So I'm really proud about how those things have sort of cascaded. I also think, though, that one of the things that I've been really focused on at the PRI is trying to say that there's a lot of social issues that we need to deal with as well. It's not all about the environment. In actual fact, these issues are interconnected. Need to see that. I think there's a long way to go. But um, I continue to try to talk about issues like uh, inequality, that in, in dealing with the climate transition, that it needs to be a just transition, that we need to make sure that people don't get left behind. Mm. Uh, so there is a planet aspect, but there's also a people aspect and we need to keep that front and centre as well. Absolutely. It sounds like you've had great success by making A, things tangible and B, making people accountable in quite a material way. And and Maria, I'd love to talk to you about the FAIR initiative. Have you seen sort of tangibility and accountability really help with the, the things you're trying to achieve or, and what have been the big wins for you? No, I mean, we've had some big wins, but I, I also perhaps want to just highlight a couple of things that maybe Fiona didn't mention in the PRI and then I'll, I'll go back to, to FAIR. I mean, when I was looking, um, sort of reflecting on some of the things we were going to discuss, Fiona, and again, Fiona mentioned that I was at, at the PRI for, for a number of years as well. Um, you know, the first thing I put on the list in your, in, in your right was the Montreal Pledge, right? I mean, that was in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. That was that was a long time ago in, this, in sort of the climate thinking. Um, and, you know, I, I also put put on their policy work, right? You, you mentioned fiduciary duty, but I, I can't reiterate enough how this idea that you shouldn't be integrating ESG into that process was was largely challenged <laughs> for a good long time. And, you know, PRI obviously played a role with, along with other leading institutions to get that thinking to be a bit more progressive, which we obviously need today. But there's a couple of things and maybe it seems in there, they are very practical, but I, I think that it's been learnings over the years and other organizations have implemented those as well. But I mean, PRI has something and, you know, perhaps investors would say it's a bit of a curse, but it's actually a blessing that was, you know, the reporting framework, you know, where you're asking the investors, your signatories, how they are integrating and incorporating environment social issues into their investment process. And I think, you know, that was the first of its kind. And now you've seen, you know, this request for reporting, you know, across the industry. And while perhaps it it was frustrating to investors to constantly be reporting on on everything they're doing, what I I think it really helped do was get investors start thinking about what they may want to showcase and where they may want to focus in terms of, you know, what makes, why, why do they have leading practices and, you know, what those leading practices are. And I think a little bit of sort of friendly competition in the market really helped to shift this conversation um, in the industry. So, I mean, again, what, what many perhaps signatories um, find slightly burdensome on a year on year basis um, really, I think helped to incredibly shape this industry and help to actually shape other organizations that are asking investors and supporting investors um, and companies to report across the board. And I mean, this idea perhaps, and and maybe to to focus a little bit on on what FAIR has learned from the PRI and what we've implemented, um, you know, frameworks, I think, are incredibly important. Um, And, you know, especially at FAIR, we were were dealing with an industry which we thought had had been operating with very little scrutiny um, over the, you know, several decades. So when you think about food system risk, particularly if you think about how animals are produced intensively into the food system, there wasn't a whole lot of focus on, well, what are the risks in this industry, even though it's a trillion dollar industry, right? 
And so we decided to really focus in on the, the largest animal producers in the world, those who are producing all of our meat, fish, and dairy um, that go into all of the supply chains across um, our entire food system, and actually assess them on how they were managing environment, social, and corporate governance risks. And I think this idea of having a framework, um, you know, a set of, of, of issues that uh, from a, through a sustainability lens, which investors can focus on and companies recognize that would be the most material to their operations um, and setting sort of some groundwork really on how they can begin to improve those processes in order to mitigate environmental risks, to address some of the social risks that, that um, Fiona focuses a lot and are extremely important and we've seen um, have come to light through the sort of food crisis through COVID. Um, and how are they managing those risks from an operational, but also a board level perspective? And I think creating those frameworks has really been um, something that has allowed FAIR to showcase some of the significant material risks uh, in our food system, as well as highlight some of the opportunities that um, we actually are have at our footsteps um, around shifting the protein supply chain to more plant-based proteins. So again, sort of building on how can we address the challenges investors have with addressing some of the, the financial risks in the system, whether that be uh, you know, a climate risk tool that looks like that looks at physical and transition risks in the meat sector, or you know, the protein producer index, or what has worked very successfully at the PRI is in having collaborative investor engagements where you focus in on thematic issues, um, have coalitions of investors come together um, to address that issue with a set of, of companies and really asking for change, um, you know, uh, and that has really had a significant impact on how companies have been approaching a lot of the ESG risks um, and, you know, in a lot of different sectors, as well as the food system today. And to what extent have these frameworks been seen as a sort of a hindrance and a pain or more of a tool? Like, and has that sort of reception changed over time, do you think? Well, I mean, I think in the food system where there was frankly not, not a whole lot previously, it really shone a light on, on this sector and who's doing well and who's doing not so well. And again, I think, you know, in many ways, corporations have a lot of data that many, many of whom are very willing to share with investors. They, we just need to um, create that sort of filter by which we can help identify what might be the most material and most interesting aspects of, of their own reporting. Um, but I do think it allows us to benchmark companies and to really highlight those who um, need where they need improvement um, and have a more in-depth dialogue with their with their investors, right? So that, that's what we hope. And it, it draws out some of the more thematic areas, for example, deforestation, um, you know, working conditions in, in meat supply chains, um, you know, waste management that'll be critical to moving the sector forward. And also, you know, again, some of the more um, optimistic and perhaps innovative approaches as we move towards, mm. you know, the, the potential for plant-based meat alternatives. I think, Katie, if I, I can just add from an investor perspective, it's no use waiting for disaster to strike to strike before you take action. So if just going on what Maria's talking about in terms of the food sector, well, we know that given climate, that more people are starting to think about how they eat, 
we know that this is this has happened. We can see the rise of vegans. We can see the rise of uh, vegetarians. So as an investor, you have to think about, well, how do I, I either have to think, well, you know, the, the food system is going to completely change and people aren't going to meet it all, eat meat at all, or are we going to improve the practices so that people feel that some people feel, well, maybe I won't eat as much meat, but I still want to eat eat meat. Mm. Um, you know, that's a per- personal preference. But I want to know that we're looking after the land at, as best that we can and we're, we're not destroying the land. But also I want to know that um, people care about animal welfare. They, they generally do. They're shocked when they see different documentaries and things mm. about the way that animals um, are treated. And so... If as investors we can de-risk ourselves by working with the corporations that we are shareholders of to bring about change, then that's a good thing. Then it's not just about saying, oh, I don't want to invest in that company because, you know, um, if I've got stocks in a in a company and I decide not to invest in it anymore, but Katie, you just buy that stock and you don't really care about these issues, then nothing's actually changed in the real world. Whereas as an investor, if we stay invested, and we can convince that the, the companies and the sector, because we are the owners of them, that we want that change to happen, then we've improved outcomes for everybody. And I think that's the power of the finance, the investment community. Absolutely. So I would add, I mean, just in terms of the food system, right? I mean, are very tangible and are very relatable. Um, and I mean, we've seen such a shift, you know, it, if you just equate to what's happened with maybe the the automotive sector, right? I think no one thought we would have electric vehicles uh, take such a significant share of um, of the market as soon as quickly as it has, right? And so, you know, investors need to think about what's happening in terms of market and consumer trends and be able to make sure that they're ahead of that curve. And the same is happening with with food systems. I mean, mm. tracking how consumers feel about their food, more and more consumers actually, you know, now are aware of where the food comes from, what's healthy, what's not so healthy, and they're making conscious choices, right, as they are with the cars they drive, with the phones they use, you know, um, and I think you're just going to see this trend continue across sectors, because we're just, we're creating a much more aware consumer base who can make some of these important decisions that really can make a big difference as we look down into sort of the financial and investment markets, right? So everybody has a role to play. Yeah. And on that note, with everyone having a role to play, we've talked about the importance of investor involvement. At the Biden summit this year, we saw really positive levels of commitment from countries. However, Fiona, yourself tweeted that, you know, some large nations failed to even commit to net zero by 2050. Sort of what to what extent do investors really need to lead the way versus relying on governments? So maybe to you first, Fiona. Well, I don't think that you can sit back and just wait for government because governments come and go. They get voted in and out. Mm. Some of them in a very short political cycle. So some governments don't have long, you know, long term, long term time in government. And whereas an investor, if I'm investing for 50, 60, 70, 100 year time horizons, so many governments are going to come and go between that in, in that time. Now, they will be governments of all different political persuasions and they'll be doing things that help them with their re-election campaigns. That's how politics works. I'm an investor. I need to think about the risks. doesn't matter who's in government. Those risks are still still there. If governments and the private sector are moving 
in the same direction at the same time, we get much more powerful change. But if I just sit back and say, well, my government hasn't committed to net zero by 2050, so I'm going to do nothing, that's not going to help you manage your risks. So investors need to act. And as part of their engagement, they need to not just engage with um, companies, that's really important, but they need to engage with governments and they need to work with governments to say, well, if I'm going to invest in this country, I need to see you bringing about change. I need to see changes in your industrial policy. I need to see the opportunities. I need to know that I'm not at risk by investing in your country because you're looking at risk in a holistic way. So uh, both have got a role to play. But, uh, you know, I always say to investors, don't just sit back and wait for governments to act. Yeah. And Maria, I assume you're in agreement with this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, exactly. I think, you know, investors in many ways and capital markets actors have had been ahead of the game in terms of pushing some of the, the more progressive views through that, again, are very firmly um, addressing long-term value of investor portfolios, right? And I, I think, as Fiona said, investors have, have a role to play with that type of policy and regulatory engagement as well. And looking ahead to COP26 coming up in November, what are you feeling hopeful for? What are you expecting? And what are you feeling maybe um, maybe pessimistic about in terms of what we're going to see in pledges and commitments? Maybe to you, Maria, well, first. Well, I'll give maybe a, maybe a more focused response and, and, and Fiona will have a, a broader view across a number of different issues. But I think, you know, if we talk about food system risk, this is kind of the perfect storm of summits and conferences this year. <laughs> I mean, we have, I mean, G7, and we can touch a little bit about how that um, addressed antimicrobial resistance, which we consider a major food system risk. But, you know, that was a, a major focus of, the, of that summit. Um, you know, COP26, again, thinking about how how countries are um, reducing their own emissions. And we're, we're really pushing for agriculture to be part of that discussion this year. Um, you have, you know, the UN Food System Summit as well. Again, what are countries and what, what, what are they thinking in terms of the food system and their own action plans and financing? I mean, again, not only are governments there to think about regulatory risk, but for particularly for the food system, or at least well, across all sectors, but how we, we are considering it is like they have a real role to play in incentivizing a shift to something that moves towards a lower carbon economy as well. So we, well, I, I, I'm optimistic. And I, and I think that you're, you're seeing a lot of governments, finance ministers, health ministers really starting to consider food system risk and equating that and linking those into what that means for significant shift on the climate front. And to you, Fiona. I feel, yeah, I feel confident, pretty confident about COP26 from the perspective that from the private sector, from the non-state actors, there is a lot happening. So just in the last, what, what something like COP26 does is it focuses people's minds and people have that as sort of like a, a period, in a, a moment in time that they're working towards. Mm. So we've seen that in our space that we've seen the Net Zero Asset Managers uh, Initiative being put in place. So asset managers who've committed to net zero. We've seen the Asset Owners Alliance. We've seen a banking sector uh, alliance. We've seen the insurance sector. So all of these 
committing to net zero. Now, once you've committed to net zero, because committing to something is the easy part, right? You've said, I want to commit to net zero by 2050. Then you have to set, set shorter term targets. So for the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, you have to set 2025 targets and then 2030 targets. Then you need to work out how you're going to get there. How do you decarbonize? And that's then when you start thinking about your whole portfolio and you do start breaking down the sectors. So what do I need to do in the agricultural? What do I do need to do with my investments in the automotive sector? What do I need to think about in, ta- in terms of water? What do I need to think about in terms of deforestation? All of these things that impact me and how am I actually going to get there? So then you translate the high-level commitment into in, action. And I think that's what then is, it's that next stage that comes out of COP26, a lot more work on the, here's the commitments, now here's how we're going to do it. We need governments to decide what they're going to do so set a date to get for electric vehicles and ending the internal combustion Mm -hmm. engine talk about what they're going to do about energy policy and set something in place so that investors know how they can invest set new standards for um, new builds new new property retrofitting buildings all of those sorts of things we can invest in all of those tangible things that will help us to reduce um, our our emissions in our portfolio. So uh, I'm excited by COP26, but I'm more excited about what innovation happens in the five years following. And staying on the the subject of summits at G7, coming out of COVID, a lot of health ministers warned of AMR um, causing sort of the next the next big pandemic, and we've touched on this a little bit. What um, achievements have you both seen in this space already? And what, and how do you think we can try and tackle this threat, um, which is a, a huge problem, as we all know? Maybe right. to Maria first. Coming out of COVID, I think, was a real sort of um, enlightened moment where the entire market understood that we possibly had a, a pandemic that was a result of food system risks or how we handled um, animals in relation to food. So I think, you know, there's been a lot of pressure on policymakers across the board to think about what could happen and what could be the next pandemic. And I think this is where, you know, antimicrobial resistance really inserted itself into the conversation, right? I mean, something like bacteria being resistant to antibiotics, um, something that has been growing slowly um, you know, for decades is now at the point that we really need some concerted intervention and governments know that. So when we went into G7, we were really hopeful that this issue would be addressed at the, with the health ministers, but actually antimicrobial resistance and made it on the agendas of the health, the environment and the finance ministers. So I think, you know, I am hopeful from a G7 perspective that we can have some real engagement from the minister across the board on how we're going to tackle this potential next epidemic that could wipe out up to 10, 100 trillion of, of economic output by 2050. Yeah, look, I think that AMR or antimicrobial resistance is really a hidden pandemic and that it's on the rise as antibiotics become, you know, continue to be overused and misused, both by humans and in the way where it's prescribed them by doctors, etc., and in food producing animals. And in fact, the threat has only really been compounded as a result of COVID-19, which we've seen, you know, an increase in the 
um, misdiagnosing or misprescription of antibiotics and growth in their use in treating complications related to the virus. And there's already at least 700,000 people who die each year as a result of AMR. And if we continue on this trajectory, the UN Interagency Coordinating Group on AMR warns we could see 10 million deaths annually by 2050. So that's more than six times the amount we've seen from the coronavirus so far. So Fiona, is, is this kind of like the pandemic that you saw in those reports that was there in black and white and it was just being ignored to an extent? It's actually something that really scares me. I think that this is going to be a really significant issue. It petrifies me. It mm. petrifies me that I might go to hospital with um, cancer, for example, and we have the best cancer treatments in the world now mm. and that you could actually save me from this cancer. But what I'm going to die of is while I'm having this treatment, I get some virus and my body is resistant to antibiotics, mm. something that we thought that we solved a long time ago because we're not using them properly. And I think if we don't address this issue, that this is an issue in the next 10 to 20 years that is going to be a real life issue. We're all see already seeing so many um, people who die of sepsis. It's yeah. just continuing. You go to, go to hospital, you get an infection or you've got an infection and if you go to hospital. And it's totally avoidable. And it's, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Like if you actually talk, if you speak to like friends and family now, you will often have a story about someone who's had to take multiple antibiotics to treat something that's been, you know, relatively easy to treat, right? Like whether it be an ear infection or a cut or a wound or, you know, and we take it so for granted that we, we're not we're not really impacted by that story. But, you know, I would stress and Fiona's right, you know, the number 700,000. Um, let's be honest, that's conservative, because when you think about people who are treated for antimicrobial resistance, right, many of those recover. So they, you know, there's not necessarily a trail of certain antibiotics not being used. On the death certificate, in many cases, if people have died from um, antimicrobial resistance for all intents and purposes, because they've been treated with 10, 15 different antibiotics and they all failed, you know, the, the illness or, you know, the reason for death often isn't AMR. So that number is very underreported. Um, and that's something else that we should be considering when we're thinking about uh, prodigious use of, of antibiotics. Yeah, and for me, from that sort of personal point of view, um, Michaela, who's my EA, a number of years ago, uh, this was obviously pre-COVID because I was going back to Australia for Christmas. And, you know, before I got on the plane, I'd been talking to Michaela and we'd been talking about Christmas and she was telling me I was just talking to my dad. He was buying, didn't know what to buy mum for Christmas. And we were talking about what she was doing for Christmas and what I was doing. And she, you know, I'm going to mum, you know, going to mum and dad's and we're going to spend the night, all of these sorts of things. I go off on the plane on the plane. There's nothing wrong with her mum when I when I leave. Just over 24 hours later, when I land, Michaela's mum has died. She's only wow. in her early 50s and she had an infection. And wow. she died of she died basically from sepsis because they couldn't get the um the, you know the antibiotics just wouldn't work. And you just think, it's unbelievable. my God, how you know how can you just don't think that these things will happen? And then I heard Dame Sally talk about the you know these um, issues, 
as well and with great passion of uh, of course and you know she used to be the person who was responsible in the UK for working with the government and being the chief scientist and has really been leading the way on warning on this issue and I think it's an issue while it's while it's gaining prominence particularly in the UK I think that there you know there's really a long way to go until it right it gets the prominence that it should have and that we come up with solutions to stop what shouldn't what shouldn't be happening. I mean, if we we march like zombies, sleepwalking into a disaster because we don't have antibiotics to to um, anymore that that will can be used to solve basic problems, then you know we're putting ourselves back in the dark ages when we don't need to. And this is when the food sector is so important and the work that Maria and Fair are doing because it's because a lot of the a lot of the antibiotics are in food. We just ingest it and we don't even realise that we are. And sort of last resort antibiotics are being um, just, yeah, funnelled into the food. Well, I think a lot of it, you know, there's, there's, it's improving, right? But, you know, a lot of the last resort antibiotics are, are developed in some cases in, in developing markets where regulations around, around stewardship and use aren't as strict as they are in other parts of the world. Um, and, you know, this is a huge issue. If 60 to 70% of our antibiotics produced today go into our food system to producing animals and are now increasingly sprayed on sort of citrus crops and other, you know, plant agriculture, I mean, that's hard. That's hard to control. Um, and, you know, think about runoff and rain. I mean, all these antibiotics are making it into our water systems. And so in many cases, it's not, you know, as simple as your doctor needs to make sure they're only giving you antibiotics if they're absolutely sure you have a bacterial infection and there's a relationship there. You know, some of this is out of our control unless we have regulatory systems in place that say you just can't put antibiotics in your off-the-shelf food for your chickens and pigs. I'm sorry, that's no longer you know, that that's no longer accessible. And, you know, following up from that, making sure that any sort of waste or runoff for the use of actually using antibiotics are, you know, are well accounted for and treated because it ends up in our in our food and water in one way or another or transmissible, um, as we've seen with COVID just from having personal contact. So five fast food brands have now publicly stated they will set or have already set science-based targets to reduce their emissions. How optimistic do we feel about these targets being met? Maybe to you, Fiona. Well, I think um, target targets based in science are really a good thing, uh, especially where they're aligning with the latest climate science. I mean, that's what we really need to do. As long as they're transparent, they're clear and they're credible uh, so that investors are able to actually use them and scrutinise them uh, and ensure, you know, we, we know that they're feasible, then I think that's really, uh, that they're really important. So I, I think science-based targets are really important. Otherwise, what are we doing, you know, if we're not incorporating science into the way that we're actually investing, uh, particularly when we're talking about 
about um, climate. And I think that science-based targets have really helped investors in, you know, in um, Maria was talking about how important it was to have frameworks mm. and having something to work with. And uh, so I definitely think that they're playing a key role. Yeah, I, I think exactly right. I mean, everybody knows what what's being asked for, right? And it, it sort of levels the playing field. Again, there it adds some transparency to, to the conversation. I mean, we've seen other sectors um, also set, um, set targets for science-based, uh, science-based targets for emissions reduction. Again, this is this is trying to link everyone together, right? So this is saying we're setting a target to reduce our emissions within a two degree warming scenario, or in some cases within a one and a half degree warming scenario. So that gives both company and, and investors some transparency of, of what we're talking about here. But I mean, just for fast food companies, I mean, from our perspective, you know, that's huge. I mean, fast food companies are feeding billions of burgers and, you know, fish sandwiches and chicken sandwiches to consumers around the world. And we know that how we're producing meat has, you know, it contributes incredibly to emissions targets. It's, you know, the animal agriculture sector produces more emissions than the entire global transport sector. So if you have the fast food companies starting to think about their supply chains and the emissions um, that are produced from actually rearing those, the, their meat, fish, and dairy, you know, that's incredible. I mean, one statistic that, you know, uh, I, I like to use just in terms of fast food, but if an average American eats, you know, many burgers, if they eat one less burger a week, that's equivalent to taking 10 million cars off the road a year. So, I mean, it has huge environmental impacts, not to mention the health impacts, but that's a, that's for a different day. And so, uh, you know, com- commitments from the fast food companies are, are important. And again, having investors hold them the, to those commitments is, is the next part of the equation. And I think, like I said, making it, signing a statement that you're going to commit to net zero by 2050, that's not particularly difficult because, you know, I'm not going to be sitting, I'm not going to still be working when I'm when it's 2050, I could make that commitment. But actually then having frameworks and setting the shorter term targets and having using credible information that's aligned with science and will actually get you to 1.5 degrees, that's a completely another thing. And that's what we need. And this isn't easy either. This has not been done before. And with the current information that we have, you know, we know that the world's on track for over three degrees. We've got to urgently get the world um, moving and getting that getting down to the 1.5 degrees. But it's not really clear at this stage how you can get your portfolio to net zero by 2050 to 1.5 degrees without uh, an incredible amount of changes in regulation, uh, in new technologies, in carbon capture and storage, in the way that we um, the way that we operate in agriculture, the way that we use land, all of these sorts of things that they all have to they all need to happen sort of in harmony and all at, all at the same time for us to actually get there. But to say that we've got a challenge on our hands is really an under is really underestimating the scale of the problem. Absolutely, and what is needed from investors and companies and pension holder communities now to really try and have impact? How can we get involved? Well, I think from a if you're if you're a person listening to this and you're a member of a pension fund, and let's face it, nearly in, in many countries across the world, there's compulsory systems. You have to put money into your pension fund. Be active. Ask your do some simple things. Ask your pension fund 
how do you invest? What are you thinking about in terms of climate change? What do you what do you do about your investments that you've got in agriculture? Do you ask questions of the of the companies? The more and more that pension funds are ask questions, the more and more they'll act. It's exactly the same as you go up the chain or down the chain, whichever way you want to think about it, in terms of asset owners, big pension funds outsource their investments to investment managers in many cases, many cases, as they ask more questions of their managers, their managers act. As we as the finance sector interact with government and say, hey, this is what we're trying to achieve. If you want us to invest in your countries, then we need you to act. You know, it all has to go together. And sometimes I think that for individuals, you can feel that this is just such a big problem. How am I going to make a difference in the world? Well, just by asking a few simple questions, you actually can make a difference. And that's what we we all need to do. We can ask questions of the supermarket that we go to and say, what do you do about antibiotics in food? Um, you know, what are the practices of uh, the the animals that are sold here, the, the meat that you sell? What are the practices? Do you follow it? Is there some standard that you use? That makes them sit up and um, take notice, and that's what we can all do. Yeah, in the food system, I mean, you really is, you know, put your money where your mouth is, right? Um, and those questions that Fiona mentioned are are you know, absolutely valid. Um, you know, we do that every day. You make choices where you can as a consumer. Um, I think, you know, with your pension providers, exactly. You know, in many cases, uh, up until recently, you know, some employee-sponsored plans didn't even offer a, you know, a sustainable sustainability option or anything, you know, any it was sustainable responsible option. And I think that in and of itself is, is a first step. You should be able to put your money in a, in a fund that has been managed with, you know, with a manager that has a commitment to uh, be looking at environmental and social issues in their process. So that should be clear in some of your investment choices through your pension provider. I think that technology is obviously also enabling a lot of this because, um, look, as a, you know, as a person, you think you think to yourself, look, well, I outsource my, I, so I pay someone to manage my pension, and people are shocked about the ways that their pensions are invested and what pension fund, some pension funds invest in. When they find out, they're like, well, hang on a minute, I thought would there be government regulation in place to stop this happen, happening? And you'd think that that would be the case, but it's not in, it's not in all cases the, the way that things happen. And we can, you know, there's social media and all of those kinds of things that keeps you alerted to issues and people can be engaged in ways that they never could, you know, even 10 years ago. But there's also more and more um, technology and apps that you can, that, that are becoming onto the market that tell you all about these issues and allow you to read up on them and point to, point them out to your, to your um pension fund in a quick and simple way, because as we all know, we're all busy. If things are too difficult and hard for us to do, we put it on the list and we have the best intention. But, you know, you've got to get the kids to school, pick them, take them to soccer, pick them up, the birthday party. I've got to get dinner. I've got to work full time. Fair enough. These things don't, don't necessarily make it to the top of your list. But if you make it simple, that's when someone's sitting on the couch watching television, that they can... Um, quickly do and see, then they will do it. And I think that's going to be the future future as well. So Winston Churchill famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, 
we've seen, as we've discussed in this conversation, a lot of attention that's come out of COVID focusing on our food systems. But at the same time, a lot of people calling to return to normal, to get on with how things used to be. To what extent do you think that this crisis is going to spark positive change for the better? Or do you think people will just want, want to go back to the way things were? I mean, I think you're already seeing positive change in terms of uh, highlighting the food system risks. And again, you know, you you have the pressure for or you know for countries like that are in the G7 to again think about and you know antimicrobial resistance across several different agendas. You know, to build back better, it, it, well, it's not a solitary focus. I mean, they're going to have to take a multi-sectoral approach. This will have to be a collaborative effort. We have to rebuild in many ways, in entire systems, entire ways of, of doing things, including how we're producing our food in order to meet the needs of our growing population. So again, I, I think COVID really showed, showed the spotlight on this. I think, you know, many of us who've been stuck at home, you know, are, are keen to go out and travel and to see mm -hmm. our families and friends, but I, I don't think we're going to immediately forget what, what we've been through for the past couple of years and the changes that are going to have to be made. So I think over the long term, this gives us a real opportunity to, to not turn a blind eye so to some of the you know critical issues that have been right in front of us uh, all along. And Fiona, you recently announced that you are leaving P the PRI and returning to Australia after an incredible tenure and lots of achievements. What do you see are the biggest challenges um, facing Australia in this area? And what are you excited for in this new role? Well, one of the things that, what you know, one of the reasons that I'm moving back to Australia is because of really COVID. You know, when I, um, I, I, live, in, I live in London and I've always been able to get in and out of Australia fairly e easily. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've gone back for holidays. I've gone back from work, but things have changed. And Australia actually has the toughest COVID restrictions in the world, along with New Zealand, and the toughest quarantine restrictions. So it's incredibly difficult to the point of nearly being impossible to get in and out of the of the country. And so I don't see that COVID's over anytime soon myself. So this is the one of the reasons that I made the decision. Well, if I can't get home then on a regular basis, then I, I don't want to be in that situation where I don't see my family. So I'm, I'm going to move back home. I also want to contribute to change in my own country. I think I've done a, a lot of trying to contribute to change globally. But Australia is really far behind on issues like climate change so that we don't even have a government who's committed to net zero by 2050. Uh, and, you know, uh, there's still big, big debates that go on about climate change. And that really means that you're not developing the economy that you need for the future. So Australia is what it's big, some of its biggest exports are, you know, minerals and things that you dig out of the ground. Coal is a huge is a huge export. So what is the country doing about thinking about the opportunities that it could have in terms of where it's particularly positioned in Asia and near China about offering the renewable uh, green economy of the future and the things that people need to make that work? That thinking isn't happening. And so, you know, I want to be, go and be part of um, those discussions in, in my in my own country, because it's all very well if many countries in the world say I'm committing to net zero by 2050. But if the biggest, if the biggest fossil fuel producing countries and the biggest countries who actually export all of these things aren't doing anything, well, then we haven't achieved what we needed, we need to um, uh, achieve. And 
I'd also like to see Australian pension funds. Australia's got the fourth biggest pension uh, investment sector in the world and it's a compulsory system and it's only going to continue to grow. It does a lot about ESG issues in Australia, but it needs to do more about joining with the rest of the world to push a, you know, a committed forward-looking agenda with, with the, with, you know, be part of the globe. So that, that's what I want to do. It's a, it's a big, um, a small, a small task. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, just a little, little just little things, small just projects. little challenges. Yeah, yeah that, that, um, you know, there's been about six prime ministers who in Australia in the last ten years who've lost their prime ministership by trying to push some of this agenda. <laughs> so, we believe in you, like, Fiona. We believe in you. <laughs> so we'll see how we go. <laughs> Excellent. And we've talked about small things and big things that we can do um, personally and from a company or investor perspective. For listeners who have um, listened to this episode, are there any other takeaways or um, actions that you recommend them taking um, if they're inspired by this conversation to uh, Maria, maybe first? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Fiona's touched on some some great ones, you know, be aware of what's in your pension fund if you're a pension holder. Um, you know, there's some small things you can do, just, you know, make selections if you can that are, you know, into sustainable funds. I mean, look at the returns of those funds. They should all have track records now. It's been going on for a long time. And hopefully you'll see that you can make equal or better returns by investing um, through a sustainability lens. I think be aware of, you know, how you contribute to, you know, the, the broader environment. I mean, if I look back of, you know, when I was a young girl, you know, things like, and, you know, we took it for granted, turn off the water when you're your teeth, turn off the lights when you're walking through your house. And now we realize that we can actually shift entire, um, you know, sectors by the choices we make. And we don't necessarily have to do it at, at our own personal cost. So like Fiona mentioned, you know, are, are you are you buying meat that hasn't been treated with antibiotics? Are you choosing, you know, products that have low emissions? And more and more, I think you'll see the, uh, the market's be able to give you the information you need in a very easy way so that you can make good decisions in in your everyday life as well. So yeah, be aware, be a conscious consumer, I would say, and, you know, hopefully push where you can. And one of those places is is definitely your pension investments. I think the other thing, I agree with all the things Maria said, I think the other thing is often people have their pension, for example, through their workplace. So you should also be asking questions of your employer. What are you doing? What where where how what is our company pension fund? How how does that how is that invested? You could ask your company about what are we doing about our travel policy and cutting emissions? What you know are we get when we when we get food for functions and things like that. I mean we do with this with our conferences at the at the PRI. We think about are the, is the food coming from local sources? We do basically all vegetarian food. Uh, so we think about the carbon credits, we think uh, the carbon that's being used, we think about using locally produced things, all of those things. I do just want to end up saying that I realise that some people have choices that others don't, and I think that's important. Mm. So some people are busy thinking about how to have enough money to buy the groceries at yeah. the end of the end of the week, some people live in much different situations and are in developing countries where, if you can get enough food to eat, if you could get enough protein, that would be a start. But it's those of us who can, and not everybody can, I think, need to be um, taking on the challenge of 
understanding that we are in privileged positions and we need to use that privilege to bring about change. And we don't just want to revert to the way things were before. You know, if we think about the world before COVID, I can understand why people want to go back to, to normal, but just finishing on the fact that, you know, we had a world that was hurtling out of control with climate. We, you know, could have got from anywhere between three to five to degrees and ruining the planet. Inequality is out of control. Race relations, as we've seen in many countries around the world, out of, out of control. And we need to take this opportunity to try to tackle some, some of those challenges and not go back, but create a much, a much better world that we can all live in. So we've talked about the number of deaths already annually um, as a result of AMR. What has been the investor action on this to date to you, Maria? Yeah, so I mean, investors have been engaging on on AMR for a while now, whether it be through collaborative engagements, as I mentioned before, um, where they're engaging directly with companies asking them to set policies to reduce their use of antibiotics, um, for example, in the, in the animal or food supply chains, but really excited about a partnership that we just launched um, last year at the WEF in, in collaboration with the PRI, the UK government, the Access to Medicine Foundation, um, and institutional investors. And really the aim here is for us to work together to address antimicrobial antimicrobial resistance as really a, a, a seeing it as a market failure. And what part does each one of us play in, in addressing the different aspects of looking for new antibiotics to help us be able to meet some of the challenges that we are, we're, we're already faced with some of the antibiotics that we've been using for years um, that are becoming ineffective. Ways to engage in different sectors, whether it be pharma or the veterinary community or the medical community. So we brought together investors to work with subject matter experts to elevate this issue, um, not just at the multilateral um, level, but as a one health approach across all sectors to hopefully raise awareness of this issue and tackle some of the challenges associated with this systemic risk of, of antimicrobial resistance. So Fiona, who are some of the investors? So some of the investors include Northern Trust, Aviva, Nordea, Legal and General, Federated Hermes, so some very large investment organisations. And it's great that these people are involved and these organisations are involved in leading the way, but we really want to see many, many more investors get involved. And I'd really like to encourage them to get involved and learn from the work that's already been done. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. It's been great to have the discussion. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Control Alt Meet. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on social media to help us reach more listeners like you. You can also visit controlaltmeet.com to learn more.